morning. So, with so many colds and sicknesses going around, it's good to see uh, many of your faces and pay attention to those who are not here with us this morning, be praying for them and lifting them up in prayer. Um, particularly, keep in mind, uh, you're aware of uh, Deanne as she is still in the hospital, as we are thinking of her and uh, just praying for her and all that she is going through. Pray for her encouragement. Um, continue to look for ways in which you can minister. I, I know she's got her phone with her, and uh, you're welcome to text her, to call her, to reach out to her, and try to encourage her in that way um, during this time. Uh, don't yet know when she'll be out, so we want to continue praying for them. Well, you can go and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we get to the end of this chapter in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been in the, really since chapter 10, we've, Matthew's been exposing to us and teaching us about who Christ is. So much of that instruction about who Christ is is coming through his interaction and his response to the religious leaders as they challenge him. It's now coming to the end of that. We reach maybe what is somewhat of a unique section in Scripture. It certainly makes us, makes us pause or think. One of the questions it leads us to ask is, why is it that the New Testament writers as a whole frame our relationship to God and to other believers as a family? Why is that? Why is it described as a family? What does it mean when we are say we are part of the family of God? What are the implications from this reality? What does it mean to be part of the family of God? These are important questions, and questions we probably don't think through too often, or nearly as carefully as we should. This text this morning that we look at, it really causes us to ask some hard questions about how we think about our biological families compared to our church families. It forces us to ask hard questions about our priorities when it comes to spending time and nurturing relationships within the body and within the church with Christ himself. But as we look at the text this morning, as we consider these things, the answers to these questions, they should encourage us and hopefully excite us as we look to how God has designed the church and what he is building for all eternity. So read along with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, that is Jesus, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside, asking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I have to admit, when I first started studying this text, I was thankful I wasn't preaching it on Mother's Day. It's one that really causes us to ask, what is the significance, what is the meaning that Jesus is seeking to impart here. A family relationship, we know it's important. And there's a reason for this. God established the family. 
From the uniting of one man with one woman shortly after creation to the command to be fruitful and multiply, it's clear that family is not only important to God, it is ordained and created by God. Because of this, it feels somewhat jarring to encounter these words of Christ, where he seems at a minimum to downplay, and at most to dissolve the nuclear family unit. But is that what's going on? Is Christ reversing the creation mandate and dissolving or redefining the family as it had been known for thousands of years when we come to this text? Let's look a bit closer as we consider what Jesus is saying here. The setting shows that Jesus is in the midst of teaching. This is not uncommon. It's not uncommon to find him in a home teaching. We often found him in Peter's home teaching as he ministered in and around Galilee. The crowds would press in so tight, and you may remember at times that when some of some friends wanted to bring someone to Jesus to be healed, they had to cut through the roof to even get to Jesus. That seems to be the case here, where the crowds have pressed in so tightly around him and are listening to his teaching, to his instruction, likely asking questions and interacting with him, that when his mother and brother show up, they can't even get to him. They're not even within shouting distance. They've got to send word, and you can imagine that game of telephone as it works its way forward to let him know that his mother and brothers are outside. As a reminder of that larger context again, there is a significant uh, emphasis in chapters 10 through 12 upon who Christ is. That's what Matthew is emphasizing over and over again, is helping us to understand who Christ is. And we've seen this as he's revealed him as the Son of God, called also the Son of Man. He has sought to present and help direct and help us to understand our relationship to Christ. And so really it's no surprise as we conclude with chapter 12 in a section that orients us toward who Christ is that we find ourselves in a discussion of relationships. And really we don't need to look long and hard at this text to recognize the overarching theme, which is that of all relationships, none is to compare with our relationship to Christ. In fact, you could summarize this another way and say, for every person that has ever lived and ever will live, how you relate to Christ is of eternal significance. In fact, it determines your eternity. If you need to write a main subject heading for this section, that's it. No relationship compares with one's relationship to Christ because it defines your eternal destiny. But as we look at this text, we realize there's really a tremendous number of implications and questions that are raised, even under a heading like that. We can understand the big picture. We can understand the big theme. That jumps out at us. But the more we start to think about that, the more we realize the implications, questions that come up about what this means, what this looks like. Starting by just observing some more of the text here in verses 46 and 47, even though some have objected, there's really no good grammatical or even theological reason to interpret this as anything other than its plain sense. That is, these are the half-brothers of Jesus, that is, the, the biological, physical sons of Joseph and Mary, and then his mother Mary, who show up looking for Jesus. By the way, we're not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this in detail this morning, but note just right off how this undermines 
the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I make note of that because this is certainly not the only text to do that, but it's an important reminder of why we want to be biblically literate. That is, we study, we understand Scripture to be able to quickly respond, refute errant teaching, and be grounded in the truth. Now, we don't know the exact reasons for the arrival of the brothers of Jesus and Mary. We do know at this point Jesus' brothers do not believe in him. So they could have been coming for any number of reasons. You may ask, why didn't Jesus' brothers believe in him? Well, stop and imagine for a moment how hard it would be to believe that your brother was the Son of God. You've grown up with him. You've eaten with him. You've slept in the same room as him. No matter how good he acted, no matter how perfect he seemed, he's still your brother. And as the colloquialism goes, you know, familiarity often breeds contempt. You can imagine, no matter how well you behaved, he was always better behaved. He never lied, he never cheated, he never punched, pushed, he never got angry. You have to wonder how many times Mary was tempted to say, why can't you be like your older brother? Just be honest for a minute. While that would have, should have testified to his sonship as the son of God, and likely did as they reflected back later on life, it would have been hard to grow up around that. During his earthly ministry, John records for us in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. You may have also noticed that Joseph is not mentioned here. While we don't know this for certain, it is likely that Joseph has died even before Jesus' ministry began, though not so distant that people didn't know that Jesus was the son of a carpenter because they refer to him as such. They said, is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son or the uh, day laborer's son? People would have known his earthly father, but we also know that at the crucifixion, Jesus tells John to care for his mother, presumably because Joseph has passed away and is no more. So Mary shows up with the half-brothers of Jesus. They're looking for him. Again, we don't know the exact reason. Could be that these brothers were embarrassed and were trying to bring him back home. Or it could be that they just hadn't seen him in a while and they simply wanted to talk and have a meal together. I would suggest that because of the reference here in this passage to Mary's presence and the fact that, think about what we know about Mary. She had treasured all that had taken place in Jesus' early years in her heart. She had testified to who Jesus was as the Messiah and as the Christ. She would have recalled the angelic visitation, the words of Martha in the early days of her pregnancy, the arrival of the wise men, Jesus' dedication in the temple, Simeon's prophecy, the prophetess Anna having, her, having the fulfillment of what had been foretold to her through the Spirit that she would see the Messiah. Not to mention 12-year-old Jesus' trip to the temple where he was there in his father's house. I think you're hard-pressed to prove that Mary did not know who Jesus was and did not believe in him. And so it's in light of this that while not impossible, I, I really don't see this as being a confrontation by Jesus' mother and brothers. There's another place where his brothers or perhaps his kinfolk do try to confront him. But I think you're hard-pressed to make that argument here. text certainly doesn't say it here or in the, the other parallel passages in Mark or Luke. It just says they're looking for him. They came seeking for him. 
Now, at this point in the narrative and in describing what has taken place, there's nothing really remarkable or spectacular about this. Jesus is teaching. Nothing new about that. There's a lot of people. Certainly nothing new about that. And then his mom and his brothers show up. It's verses 48 through 49 which begin to unsettle us. I mean, leave it to Jesus to take someone letting him know that his family has showed up and wants to see him to turn it into a profound moment of teaching. I mean, it's one thing to cast out a demon, perform miracles of healing, feed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and then launch it into teaching concerning the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus uses the most benign of occurrences. His family just shows up to teach us a profound truth concerning the relationships or concerning relationships in the kingdom of God. When Jesus asks, who are my mother and brothers, which is another way of saying, who is my family? You have to wonder if some in the crowd were on the verge of asking, do do you really not know? Or is this a trick question? Jesus doesn't leave them in suspense for long. Instead, in verse 49, he stretches out his hand toward his disciples, towards those who are gathered around, and says, Behold, my mother and my brothers, that is, behold, here, sitting at my feet, the disciples, this is my family. With this brief statement, Jesus has, in essence, shouted fire in a crowded room. He has got their attention. Because he has just upended everything they know about the societal structure that they've been living in. Family, obviously family is important, but to Jewish society, to number and most cultures and societies throughout history, family was incredibly important. If you think about the Old Testament, the genealogical lists and the genealogies that were kept, tracing one's family lineage, not just that you're a Jew, but to which tribe you're a part of. These were all very important pieces the Jewish faith and community. It was important to be a part of family. Family was everything. Family units were often bound together where they would just continue expanding the house as they continue adding family members to the family. And here Jesus is redefining who is his family. And while he did not right deny that he was related to his biological mother and brothers, He's expanding and reorienting our understanding of family in the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because every time he is teaching, and Matthew tells us this at the beginning, he went out teaching the kingdom of God. So if he's teaching us something about family and relationships here, then he must be teaching us about family relationships in the kingdom of God. And as jolting as this statement may have been, this is not the first time Jesus has subordinated earthly human relationships to spiritual ones. You can just look back in this the same section of Scripture, but back in chapter 10, down in verse 34, we read, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. As we discussed when studying Matthew 10, Jesus does not say, don't love your father, your mother, your son, your daughter. He says, if you love them, what? More than me. This has always been the pattern throughout history. God has always intended that our earthly relationships be prioritized rightly with regard to our heavenly one. As important as family relationships are, they were never intended to replace or obscure our relationship with God. Like so much of the New Testament, this section here is a reaffirmation and clarification of the well or the depth of theology found in the Old Testament. Consider, for instance, the example of Abraham. In Genesis 12, what did God say to Abraham? The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham, or Abram, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham left his family when God called to him. In Genesis 22, Abraham, or as he came to be known, Abraham, Abram, with his name changed to Abraham, was finally blessed with a son. That, that promise of that blessing, the descendants, they continued to wait and wait and wait, and he got older and older and older. Sarah as well. Eventually they're given a son, and what does God tell him to do with the son? Sacrifice him. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven when Abraham had taken his son Isaac, they had gone to the mount. Isaac had carried the wood upon his back, had asked his father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham had said, the Lord will provide. They arrived up there and Abraham had Isaac, who by the way was not a child at this point, lay down across the altar, raised his knife to take his own son's life. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he believed God would raise him from the dead. But instead, in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And the angel of the Lord said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing for it to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God did not condemn or correct Abraham for loving and cherishing his son as much as he did. Not at all. But he was testing his priorities. My kids do this in our house all the time. Do you love us or do you love mom more? And I let them know every time, I love your mom more. And I said, you want that. Because when I love your mom more, I can love you more. Over 400 years later, when addressing the Exodus generation, God, through Moses, said to the Levites, who, when it came to obedience to God and forsaking idolatry, were willing to punish and even put to death some of their own family members. Looking back on that event, God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 33.8, O Levi, he said, let your Thumen, your Urim, 
belonged to your godly man, whom you proved at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and they kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Or consider the example of Ruth, who left her family and all that she knew to follow after God and her mother-in-law, Naomi. In Ruth 2.10, we read, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? For I am a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. There are many more examples where our earthly relationships are prioritized in view of our heavenly relationship, specifically our relationship with God. Jesus' words here in Matthew 12, then, are a crystallization of the theological truths that have been expressed throughout the Old Testament, that we must prioritize our relationship with God and here with Christ above all else. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Now, I want you to think for a second about the closest friendship you have here on earth. Perhaps it's your spouse. Perhaps it's someone you've known for many, many years. I want to ask, what is it that has made that relationship so important? What is it that has deepened that relationship? What is it that has created the bonding of hearts in that relationship? It likely includes time together. Shared experiences, shared joys, shared griefs, meals you've spent together, late nights conversing. Now here's a question I have for you. When you think about the amount of time and effort you spend cultivating your relationship with Christ, does it begin to compare? Is it really any wonder that we struggle to love Christ when we put so little effort into cultivating that relationship? Too often we treat Christ the way we do casual acquaintances. You know, it's, it's the ones who you're always saying, hey, we should get together sometime. But you rarely follow through. How can we expect to love Christ the way, when we treat Christ the way we do? When we treat him like a casual acquaintance? When we don't pour into the relationship? when we do not spend time meditating, praying, studying His Word. You may have heard it said before, but you know, love is a verb. It requires action. We know this through how God's love was demonstrated to us. What does Romans say? What does Paul say in Romans? But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That love was demonstrated through His death, His sacrifice. Our love for Christ and devotion to Christ is proportionate to the amount of time, energy, and effort we spend on Christ. You know, it's interesting. He's never failed to meet me in prayer 
in study, in meditation. It's I who have failed to show up, and so my relationship suffers, and my love diminishes. Would you continually stand up a friend? We do it to Christ. We set appointments, we have good intentions, but something else grabs our attention, so we say there's always tomorrow or there's later today, and we fail to show up and meet him. He's there, he's waiting, he's desiring you to draw near. We would never even treat a casual acquaintance like this, and yet we treat the Lord of creation, the Savior who gave his life for us with this thoughtless indifference. You know what the amazing thing is, though? Unlike that casual acquaintance who probably wouldn't put up with that more than one or two times, he is always there waiting. He's always there to receive you. As significant and important as our love for Christ is, this is not a zero-sum instruction. What do I mean by that? It means that this love for Christ doesn't mean you're not allowed to love anybody else. It doesn't mean there's only so much love to go around. In fact, if I may put it this way, and I think about it with my children, you know, we, we have our first one is born, and you wonder, I couldn't possibly love another one as much as I love this one, and yet you have your second child, and somehow your, your love, your capacity to love has grown. And then as you love that one, maybe you end up with a third, or in our case, a fourth, and our capacity for love has continued to grow. You see, the more we pour into our relationship with Christ, the more we love Christ, the more we devote time, effort, and energy to loving Christ, the more our capacity to love others grows. Conversely, the less time we spend with Christ, the less time we spend loving him, the harder it will be to show great love for others. This command, then, is one of prioritization. We are to love others, but one is the greater and that relationship must supersede all others. The more we rightly emphasize and rightly prioritize our relationship with Christ, the healthier our relationship is with others. The more I love Christ, the more time I spend with Christ, the healthier my relationship with my wife. The healthier relationship with my wife, the healthier the relationship is with my children. I prioritize her. This text and the prioritization of our relationship with Christ is never an excuse for neglecting our immediate family. I just want to say that. It's really it's a parenthetical to this because some have misunderstood this passage. Maybe not even explicitly, but implicitly. But think about Jesus. In the midst of bearing the weight of humanity's sin, feeling the weight of God's judgment, what did he take the time to do with nails in his hands and his feet, bleeding from beatings on his back, with a crown of thorns on his head, dehydrated in agony, bearing the weight of sin, the full wrath of God? 
he pauses to do what? He cares for his mother. In John 19.26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that was John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Paul likewise says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There are many sad stories of the neglect families have suffered because usually the father has considered the love for Christ or love for God to be that zero sum. I can only do one. I, I don't have room for both. That the only way they could show complete devotion was through the neglect of everything earthly and sadly the family. I don't think it was always consciously. I think more often than not it was subconsciously. But as one wife of a pastor who had a far-reaching ministry, had blessed many people, is purported to have said, my husband had his priorities and I just wasn't ever one of them. Men who would otherwise be considered stalwarts of the faith have sadly neglected their obligation to their wives and their families, whether it's providing for them or simply loving them to their own shame and disgrace. So how do you avoid these excesses? Because that's, that's the tension, right? That's the tension we have here in this text. It is clear that the preeminent relationship that we are to pour into is Christ. How do I do that without neglecting other relationships? I think Jesus gives us that answer in verse 50. Though the words are few, the implications are far-reaching. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Before we deal with all these implications, recognize that Jews believed that they were children of God that their eternal destiny was assured by nature of their ancestry. They were a Jew, so of course they were okay. Here in the South, we have something very similar where we can just use the word Christian and we feel like we're okay. Jesus is rebuking that idea and highlighting that fellowship, highlighting that fellowship and sonship in the kingdom of God is dependent solely upon an individual's relationship to Jesus Christ. No one will ever enter heaven because their father or mother were Christians or any other family member. It will be on the basis of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Elise was relating to me something that her youth pastor in California used to say when he would say, there are no grandchildren in heaven. We are all sons and daughters. We do not get to heaven through another. There is no other ancestry. We must become sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ. And so notice how Jesus defines relationship to him, how he defines love for him by doing the will of his Father. Repentance and regeneration are the inward work, but the outward work of one who is a brother or sister of Christ, who is in the family of God, is doing the will of God. This recalls what Jesus said toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
If you're here this morning and you have no desire to do the will of God, then for you this morning, the call is not to try harder. The response is to repent, to turn from your sins, to cry out to Jesus to save you. Because no amount of effort on your own part will change your heart. You have no ability to love Christ more by just doing more. That's not for you. There is no action you can do that will make you love Christ more if you have not repented of your sins. If you do not have that inward desire to do the will of God. But for those that do believe, that do desire to please God, it is necessary that then we put that into practice. It's what Paul says. The wishing is present, but the doing, that's the hard part. And we need to be busy about doing it. If we claim that we love Jesus, then we will busy ourselves with doing the will of the Father, he says. And this is hard work. Again, love is a verb, and to do it well requires hard work. It will not happen passively. You will not grow in your love for God. You will not grow in your love for Christ by doing nothing and just waiting for it to happen. It takes effort. It means dying daily to your own wants and desires. Well, what do we mean by that? It means putting others' needs before your own. It means sacrificing what you want for what someone else wants. It means spending time with the Lord. It means spending time with others. It means caring for others. It means obeying the Lord when he instructs us to care for our family. That's what I mean by how do we balance this tension. Well, what are some of the very clear instructions we have, both from Old Testament and New Testament? Part of doing the will of the Father is to care for your own family. There really is no tension. They work in perfect harmony with one another. And the more time I spend with Christ, the, the more I desire to love him, the more I'm going to want to show that through how I care for those he's brought into my life. The most obvious ones, sovereignly ordained, are our family. I didn't choose who I would be born to. My children didn't choose who they would be born to. Again, this work is not the source of our salvation, but the fruit of it. But we're to bear much of this fruit. This call to active discipleship through doing the will of the Father is in no way legalistic, though. In fact, it really rejects the legalistic demands of the Pharisees that we've seen. Instead, it calls for faithfully living while considering the love of Christ. And it's the love of Christ that energizes us, that motivates us, that helps us want to obey. And nowhere is that love toward us manifest so clearly as in the sending of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice so that we might share in the inheritance reserved for the Son. There's an implicit pattern here as well. We look in the disciples who are the ones who Jesus calls my family, my brothers, my mother. Where are they? Where are they, are they spatially? They're right here. He's able to point to them. They're likely at his feet, the ones nearest to him, closest to him. They've drawn near to him. There's an instruction here for us that those who love Christ draw near to him and study and want to be instructed by him. So if we want to love Christ, 
study Scripture so we might know His will, the will of the Father, and be able to please Him in every respect. And while the emphasis is clearly on prioritizing our relationship with Christ, He is introduced here the reality that we are now part of a much larger family. And this is what we begin to see unfolded throughout the New Testament in so many of the epistles as they refer to the family of God. And so what does this say practically? Or what does it mean practically about how we care for and treat others in the church? We're to treat them as we would our closest relationships. We're to treat them as our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers. Again, the epistles are replete with instruction concerning the care that is to be shown for those in the church, the way we are to love one another in the church. And this reality also highlights that the normal experience of Christians and Christianity is corporate, not individualistic. In fact, there is no concept of individualistic Christianity in all of Scripture. It's not to ignore that there are times where persons by no choice of their own find themselves in unique circumstances where they're isolated, but that is not the norm and it shouldn't be by choice. The norm is to be in fellowship around other believers. It involves engaging in conversation. It involves transparency of sharing hurts and struggles. Again, what is it that knits close friends together? What is it that knits families together? It's living with one another, sharing experiences with one another, joys, sorrows, griefs, excitement. It takes time and effort to develop and cultivate these relationships, but it's necessary as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Those who fail to do this miss out on some of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. Those who are afraid to be transparent in their relationships with others, that hold back and won't engage with the body of Christ, who reserve and pull back. The early church was so dedicated to developing these relationships within the church that they were actually accused of incest by pagan neighbors who didn't understand the reference to brother and sister. They were likewise accused of other immoral relationships solely because they showed so much love and care for one another. Their neighbors, these these pagan neighbors, had no frame of reference for this. They didn't understand how people, how a, a slave and an owner could love one another. How these different nationalities could get together and be so kind, so loving, so caring for one another how they could look after one another's needs. It didn't make any sense to them. So Christians were subject to all sorts of slander, so much of it around the fact that they loved one another and they cultivated what it really means to be a brother and sister. It wasn't all misunderstanding, though, because that love for one another was also a tremendous testimony. It's something that we want to have. Many were drawn to the warmth of this Christian fellowship like a warm fire on a cold day. Our love for Christ and love for one another should be so obvious, so clearly manifested that those around us either run from its light 
loving the darkness rather than the light, or they're drawn near, yearning to experience this warmth of relationship that is rooted in a love for Christ. There's a whole depth of theology to be worked out regarding the family of God and this new family that is created within the kingdom of God and its implications. But this morning, in closing, there's two things I want you to do. This is your homework for the week. If you take nothing else away from what we've studied this morning, these are the two things I want you to do this week. I want you to think about what is one thing you can do this week to deepen your relationship with Christ. If it's setting an alarm on your phone to remind you to pray at certain times every day. Whether it's to more consistently read your Bible. Perhaps it's to memorize Scripture so that it's meditating and running through your mind. Whatever it is, I want you to stop and think and make just one thing this week that you work on to love Christ more. The second thing I want you to do is write down, put it in your phone, however you need to make note of it, and think, what can I practically do this week? What is one thing I can practically do to demonstrate the love of Christ to a brother and sister in this church? How can I do that? How can I show it? Because we can talk all day about what we should be doing, but are we doing it? Perhaps it's calling and checking on someone meeting with someone, bringing someone a meal. How can you show someone that you love them as a means of loving Christ? And I hope it doesn't stop this week, but let's start this week. Being dedicated to loving Christ and loving the family of God. It's a high calling. It's a special calling. But there is so much hope, there is so much promise that is built in this. And the more we mirror the family of God, the, the more it should excite us because this is, this is the family that we get to spend eternity with. This is, this is the family that gives hope when we realize that sin has destroyed families in this world. And amidst all the sin and the brokenness and the broken relationships and broken families, there should be a place, and that place is the church, where people can come and see what it means to experience relationships as God intended. And we're still sinners. The closer you get to me, the more you're going to realize what a sinner I am. The more you get, the closer you get to one another, you're going to have sin. But see, God's given us ways of dealing with that, of loving and forbearance, of asking for forgiveness and forgiving one another. We need to be busy about these many different things. All of it begins to work together. But our responsibility isn't to worry about how many times we've been hurt, how many times we've been offended. We just pour ourselves out in loving Christ and loving one another. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for the reminder of Christ's love for us and as a result, the reminder that we need to make our love for Christ preeminent. Above all relationships, It needs to be prioritized. Father, help us to be diligent in doing this. Help us to to put this into practice, Father. Pray that this church would be marked as one that 
that loves you and that is so clearly manifested not just because we have a deep understanding of Scripture and your Word, but because we, we put it into practice in how we care for one another, how we love one another, how we serve those around us that you bring into our lives. Father, would the love that we have be as that warm fire that draws persons in from a cold night, that it would be a man, means of testifying to your goodness and to your grace, in our lives, that we would see your kingdom grow as we put these things into practice. We pray this in your name. Amen.